everybody and welcome to this episode of the Heart Podcast. It's me again, James Rudd, the Heart Digital Media Editor. Today we're talking big data, we're talking prediction, and we're trying to predict which patient will be admitted as an emergency to hospital over the next two years. Can we do this using machine learning on routinely collected healthcare data records? To help me answer this question, I'm joined by Dr. Kazim Rahimi from the University of Oxford. Kazim published a paper recently entitled The Prediction of Risk of Emergency Admission with Machine Learning, Development and Validation Using Linked Electronic Healthcare Records. This is in the journal Plus Medicine, but I think it's very relevant to the heart audience, how we can use this kind of routinely collected data to try and identify which patients are at a particular risk of needing to go to hospital as an emergency. I hope you enjoyed the discussion. Okay, well, thank you very much indeed for joining me today, Kazem, on this uh, podcast. And I wanted to have you as a guest uh, for several reasons. One, you're an associate editor at uh, Heart and uh, seem keen to be part of the uh, podcast community. But much more importantly, you're also deeply embedded in the world of data science for cardiovascular applications and you published a paper last year which was all about trying to predict uh, whether a patient would end up as an emergency admission in hospital and you did this in a very uh, innovative way I think by using linked electronic healthcare record data. Can you tell us a little bit about the rationale for the study first of all? Yes, uh, I mean generally speaking um, emergency hospital admissions are a major source of um, healthcare spending uh, in the UK and in many other places around the world. So there have been efforts um, trying to predict um, uh, which patients are more likely to have an unscheduled admission to hospital um, as a way of um, managing that risk um, before people are um, admitted to hospital. Um, and you know the way it's done is typically the hospital data sets and standard statistical model to predict that risk and we saw an opportunity that um, using large-scale linked electronic health records that one might be able to address this question um, in a different way and hopefully get um, results that are going to be of um, more value to decision makers. And in terms of the standard statistical tests that you talk about, uh, can you tell us a bit more about how this is currently done? Yes, I mean, the the most common approach that is done in um, is using some sort of a time-to-event analysis, typically a hazard model, Cox regression model. Um, And the way we design those studies is normally very um, expert-driven. We define what are the likely predictors of an outcome, in that case, what um, variables in a database do we have access to and which of them are likely to be more informative in terms of predicting outcome. Um, And then the model is built and uh, we are trying to regress um, the, the, the patients or the events that predict who is more likely to be admitted to the hospital. I mean, the issue there are, you know, it's got a number of issues. One is very expert driven, so we need to be um, dependent on not prior knowledge about what features we, we would want to include in the model. And the second thing is fundamentally, most of those regression models um, have an assumption that um, those uh, predictors that we entered in the model are independent and typically the other assumption is that they have got a linear relationship um, in one way or another. Um, And that, of course, for prediction of complex outcomes such as um, hospital admission 
could become an issue where we know that this is not just a few clinical variables that predict the risk. A lot of it is dependent on where people are coming, physicians' behavior, patient behavior, environment, and so on. So we thought in that context, it might be an opportunity to, set, um, to look at it differently. And so how did you go about doing the study, Kazem? What, what group of patients did you study and what kind of machine learning models did you use? Um, so, I mean, we, we just thought, you know, we should probably, if you want to just see whether the method itself is more promising for answering that question, we should start by picking the best model, uh, conventional statistical model that is, that is available as a benchmark model and compare any model that we test against that. Um, unfortunately, in the UK, linked electronic health records data have been around for some time, and there are excellent researchers who have been using that um, database for developing very useful uh, clinical risk prediction models. Um, I mean, the, the listeners might be familiar in the context of cardiovascular disease with the Q-risk model that predicts the risk of cardiovascular disease. A similar model exists for admissions to hospital called Q-admissions model that has got actually very excellent properties in terms of discrimination uh, as published in the report. So that is how we started saying, let's take that model as the as a baseline and then select a couple of standard machine learning models. And in that case, we used random forest and gradient boosting model and um, sequentially made them a bit more um, complicated. And at each stage, we compared it to that uh, benchmark model of uh, Cox proportional hazard model. And you started off, uh, I see in the paper here, using 43 uh, variables or risk factors, we could call them. What kind of things yeah. did you, did you, or how did you identify those? What kind of things did you put into the model? So essentially, we started by the, the same predictors that the Q admissions model has used. Um, and these are typical uh, variables, you know, these are patient demographics, well, you know, sex, age, the lifestyle factors, a number of diseases, uh, including some blood test results that were included into the, into the model. That was sort of if like the baseline model. And sequentially, we added a few more predictors to that. So we increased the number of diseases um, in, in, by another 13. Um, and in addition to that, we also looked at the timing of the, the information. You know, typically in the conventional statistical model, we tend to ignore when events occurred. So we have a baseline defined and look at whether patients had any of those conditions in the past. But what we're able to do here is just also add the elements of, okay, when did the disease happen in the past? Was it just a week ago or five years ago? So this was essentially a sequential way of making them more complicated. So adding in a temporal element. And I see you also did that with blood tests as well. When was this most recent exactly. value? When did this medication start, for example? Yes, exactly. And then your primary outcome was admission to hospital within 24 months, right, of the start of the study. Exactly. And that was, again, because that was the time frame that was used in the benchmark model. Okay. And what were the, what were the main findings, Kazem? Um, so what, what we found is that um, just by replacing the, this uh, conventional linear regression model with um, those gradient boosting model and random forest, we can immediately improve discrimination performance of the model by a few percentage points. Adding the, the temporal information increased it even further. Um, and then what we also looked at was the model um, calibration. Not only was the model good at discriminating risk, but also the model, the, the machine learning models were much better in terms of calib uh, risk calibration. What it means, in a sense, 
better predicting the absolute risk, not only ranking the individuals across the, the risk spectrum. And the third finding was, in addition to you know, better discrimination, better calibration, was that when we changed the time horizon for prediction, um, as you can imagine that some decision makers are interested in predicting the risk just within the next six months, others in 24 months, others might want to look at long-term risk. But we found that you know, the, those machine learning models were more stable across the different time horizons and didn't lose the predictability as the time horizon widened. Yeah, I was really interested in the calibration aspect you just mentioned. The the standard Cox regression certainly seemed to, as you add more uh, variables into the regression model, the performance really seemed to drop off, the calibration really dropped off, whereas the others seemed to massively improve. Yes, I mean, that that is a sort of a bit of a surprise to us as well. I mean, I, and I don't know exactly why it happened. I mean, as the paper shows, not only does the calibra- calibration becomes worse, the uncertainty around it becomes also much wider. Mm. Um, so um, that is something to be looked at in the future. But what was interesting, as you just said, that the, in particular, the gradient boosting model had an excellent calibration uh, in the model. And how does this work fit into the context of, of previous work? I mean, there's a, an explosion of machine learning papers I see now in the literature in, in similar yeah. areas, but... Is yours um, is yours unique by the fact that you had access to such a large data set over 4.6 million patients? Yes, I mean there, there are a few features of this uh, work that I think make it quite interesting. One was, uh, you know, a lot of the time when you see machine learning models, they don't actually compare it with any benchmark, so it's very hard to just tell how well a standard model would compare. So we were able to use, if you like, a control, controlled environment where we had a very complex data set and we could identify a model that has been previously published, um, and we could directly compare our models against that. Um, so it is a better like-to-like comparison, a fairer comparison than some of the papers that just publish a single model. The the, the second thing um, in this was that that um, database itself is you know much much richer than some of the hospital database that uh, the standard machine learning models um, are uh, applying those models to. Um, and then the, 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 the other component that I didn't mention, I mean, um, uh, is, is the validation of the model. Um, it's very hard normally to validate uh, risk prediction models in the context of big data because there is usually not a second big data that you can access to replicate your model in terms of external validation. But what we did here at the, at the beginning of uh, developing the models, we essentially deselected a few regions in the UK where the data was never seen by the model, and we purposefully selected those uh, regions. It wasn't a random selection. And there were those regions that did have a very different rate of admission to hospital. Um, and by doing this, um, and, and then we validated the model on that um, setting. And that you know, made our job much harder, but gave us more confidence um, that these models are not overfitting. So that was sort of like the unique features of the, the work that we have done. But in terms of you know um, what is um, if you like the, the one of the weaknesses of this work is we st- as I said you know we started with very off the shelf conventional machine learning models as a proof of principle to just see how those perform uh, for such an outcome. Um, but the field is moving on. I mean we we didn't apply the deep learning models, the neural networks model to that. I mean not in this paper. I mean that is the work that we are doing at the moment. And from what we see that, you know, even using those models is likely to, to, to lead to even higher performance than what we observed in this paper. Using a deep learning model, you say? Yes. 
so that's what you're working on now, the same data set, but enhanced, uh, so we say modeling gain rather than information gain. Exactly. I mean, you know, it's the, 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 one of the features of the deep learning models is that unlike the standard machine learning models, we don't need to specify which variables are important. We could essentially select every disease and every medication that, that we've got access to and let the model to just pick which of them are likely to be more relevant. Um, so, um, and they tend to be you know, much stronger in terms of the uh, predictive ability, and that is what we are observing, and that is what a lot of the literature at the moment seems to be suggesting. And more broadly, because I'm a, as a as a practicing cardiologist, but also a, a big data expert, what's your view on this area of of research? It seems that uh, there's an enormous amount of money flowing into this. The British Heart Foundation here in the UK is very front and center of this effort in cardiovascular medicine. I mean, how do you how do you see the landscape developing over the next few years? Um, I think, I mean, I certainly welcome that decision to invest in that area. I mean, having done that for a few years, I can see both sides of it. I mean, it is hugely challenging and the risk of getting it wrong <laughs> is very high, um, but the potential gain is extremely high as well. Um, I mean, the way we you look at it is from both the clinical epidemiological angle as well as the engineering machine learning approach, mm. uh, which I think is quite quite helpful in that context to be able to better understand and at the end to look at the problems that we're facing in clinical practice and how those could offer a solution to it. I mean, the, the, the field is quite vast and, you know, we, you know, we are sort of focusing on one area, which is electronic health records and machine learning in the context of electronic health records is very different than, let's say, machine learning in the context of imaging. Mm. Um, and, you know, the, the, the direction is going to be, the development in science is going to be in different directions as well. But, I, you know, I, I find it very exciting and I find it very stimulating as well intellectually. I'm learning a lot from my colleagues uh, on a daily basis. Yeah, absolutely. Me too. Here in Cambridge, it's uh, uh, it's it's a very seductive area of medicine. And as you say, yeah. Uh, a very exciting intellectually. I mean, do you think we're doing enough to train the next generation of a clinician data scientists? I, I think perhaps not. But uh... No, I mean, it's a sort of a bit of a delay, obviously, in, in how things are done. Um, and uh, one of the challenges, obviously, that the market value of those data scientists is much higher outside academia than within academia. So, I mean, at the moment, the demand is certainly... Uh, greater than the, the supply, um, but I'm sure there would be some balancing of the market in the next few years. But you know, we, we have been we have been fortunate. I mean, that, in that area, because uh, I don't know for what, whatever reason uh, we have been able to get the, the, the right people on board. But definitely, I mean, the point that you're making is very important. How do we restructure training to just address the need for future years to come? Yeah, I mean, I see that HDI UK, Health Data Research UK, has just announced uh, some master's programs, which uh, I think are going to be very welcome, uh, including one, I think, in Oxford as well. So uh, uh, that's fantastic news. But thank you very much indeed, Kazem, for your time, for joining me on the podcast. And I will put links to the paper and also to your website in the show notes so people can, uh, can find out more about this fascinating area. Thank you very much. Pleasure.